0: Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Steve Cope. He's the president and CEO of Silver Viper Minerals Corp. Uh, who are a Canadian-based junior mining exploration company focused on precious metals, um, exploring in um, Sonora, Mexico, um, and operates its 100% owned, La Virginia Gold Silver Project, uh, acquired from the most recent operator, Pan American Silver. Um, Steve's mining experience has covered a wide range of areas, including financing companies, project evaluation, um, investor relations and mergers and acquisitions. And has been in the Silver uh, Silver Viper since 2016. Um, so he's going to share his story with us, tell us a little bit more about Silver, Silver Viper Minerals um, and a little bit more about what they're looking to achieve. So that's welcome, Steve, to the podcast. How are you doing, Steve?
1: Doing great, Rob. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, appreciate your time as well. So, as we always start these podcasts off, just wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about uh, your background, about your career to sort of present day.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I've grown up in the industry. My father ran junior mining exploration companies. He started as a broker and then took over a company when I was still in elementary school. So I've I've kind of grown up around him. My his younger brother, my uncle, is a is a geologist by trade. um When I came out of university, it was a industry I'd always wanted to get involved with. I came back, started working for the Belcarra group at that point, Um, you know, really getting to to learn the ins and outs and the lingo of the industry. And then realized very quickly that I needed to get away from that group and show that I could create and build my own career in the industry away from my father and that group. And I ended up working for a producing company called Timmins Gold that was operating in Sonora, Mexico, ironically. Um, And I worked there for three years, started working my way up in the career and then there was an opportunity to come back and start get back involved with a group with the idea that we'd be starting a company and they wanted me to take over as CEO. So, you know, I progressed in and that was obviously Silver Viper Minerals. I've worked with multiple, you know, various exploration companies in the industry and corporate development and business development side of things. Um, And now I've been running with Silver Viper and then helping out the other companies in the Belcura Group as well.
0: So just wondering, can you just tell us a little bit more about Silver Viper?
1: Yeah, Silver Viper right now is a single asset company. We have a a very attractive open pit heat bleach to start asset that you would go underground on our high grade structure afterwards. It's, you know, we're still in the exploration stage. We made our discovery at the El Ruby area after taking over the project. Um, You know, that's become the main event on the project. It's, you know, we produced some pretty spectacular grades, excuse me. And and really shown the potential with additional discoveries there for it to be an open pit heap leach operation, which is what the state of Sonora is really known for. So, you know, where where our grade and our resource is sitting at double to triple what the average grade of other open pit heap leach operations in the state are. Um, you know, now it's just been you know wait and see and let's see how big we can grow the asset and and really make it appealing to those large major major mining companies.
0: Um. There's been some questions about the future of mining in Mexico. Um, how do you see the, the the current and future government in Mexico affecting uh, Mexican mining companies?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's been the, certainly the AMLO regime has not been the best for mining companies and mining exploration companies. You know, it hasn't it hasn't affected our exploration work. You know, we've. We, we've just even within the last year redid all of our drilling permits we're, we're permitted to drill and work anywhere on the project uh, local communities are fantastic local governments even state government of sonora is great and, and wants to work with you and mining is the number one industry in the state but amlo you know publicly has you know obviously made people you know pay attention and even you know this last week made the announcement that they're they're looking at a proposal to not allow open pit mining you now it's been already been major pushback on that front from state governments, mining companies. Uh, and when, when you're looking at a state like Sonora, frankly, you know, the majority of the mines are open pit heap leach operations and what, you know, finance and run that state. It's the number one gold producing state in Mexico. So, you know, it's a proposal now we're also coming into an election. So you, and, and AMLO is not returning and both from what I've been told from people in Mexico, both political groups that are kind of the front runners, including his own party, but his replacement are, are far more pro mining than what he has been and should be very good for the industry and, and the companies working in Mexico moving forward. So it's it's a wait-and-see approach, but it's definitely made people take notice. Investors definitely aren't as high as they've been in the past on Mexico, which is tough because you know, when you're looking at silver and you're looking at, you know, Mexico's the number one silver producing country in the world you've got a worse political situation in Peru and in Chile and they'll, you know, there you're getting your massive byproducts and Peru being the number two silver producing company in the world, country in the world and, and Chile right there behind again at three or four. Um, So it's been a really tough time for, you know, these areas where you typically have to look at if you want to get large exposure to silver, you get some out of Canada, some out of the U S some out of other parts of the world, but, you don't seem to get those large deposits that really move the needle like you do in Mexico and in, you know, the rest of Latin America.
0: Um, obviously your project in Sonora, um, there, there are obviously security uh, concerns. Um, And what is this, I suppose, what is special about that part of Mexico and um, the Sierra Mandra?
1: Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's Mexico. Um, I would, I would, yeah, I would definitely say if anyone says that there's not a cartel around or there's not people involved in the drug trade, then they're lying to you or they're really naive because they're in every small community. There's obviously there's, you know, positions and, and we've got a great working relationship with those small communities. Most of our workforce comes from them. And our group as a whole has worked in Mexico for decades. And gone through multiple political regimes. We've gone through, you know, the Mexican when they the government took on and the war on drugs to really wipe up to wipe out the Zeta cartel. And and it's for the most part we're we're very picky about which states we're willing to work in in Mexico. Where, you know, and for us Sonora is number one or number two. Durango would be the other state that we really love working in. Zacatecas can be good. And then within those states, you just got to be smart about picking. The location of your project, because obviously some areas are are can be have more issues than others. Um, I would always stay away from working right on the U.S. border, um, where you've got you know direct lines where guys are smuggling drugs across the border and you've got violence and there's more activity. Where we are is fairly isolated. You know, we take a highway from Hermosillo out to the project. Um, once you're at the pro- the local community of Nacori Chico, you're about thirty minutes in from the highway there on a gravel and dirt road to our camp that's up in the mountains. This is an area where you don't have there's no drugs being grown or anything along those lines, and it's certainly not an area where they're trying to you know walk from hundreds of kilometers away from the U.S. border through the Sierra Madre Mountain and trying to it's it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we're we're very isolated, we're left alone. You know there's there's nothing on that front that we've you know our guys are out there sleeping in the tents that the drillers set up. These are large commercial tents, but they feel safe. The locals feel safe. There's open dialogue. Um, so it's, you know, again, we, we're very picky about where we work. Anytime you're working in Mexico, you want to work in an area where one cartel controls the whole area. I mean, that's the other safety side is when there's cartel on cartel violence. And, and again, we're, we're safely within the ground of the largest drug cartel in Mexico. So I think it's, again, it's those large cartels. And that's why those States that we mentioned are important is, is there, they don't want to do stuff you know they don't want the attention from the government of kidnapping and trying to rip off farmers and do all the little stuff where other parts of mexico you have these smaller cartels that aren't as well financed and they do rely to some of those more you know drastic methods of trying to raise capital for their operation and and we have no desire or need to want to work in the states where we see that being more of a potential risk
0: is there more of a security uh, risk for say expats working in in mexico or is that pretty similar to what you've been saying It's it depends on the region
1: i think it depends on your region again i mean i and i've i've been down in mexico in durango even when i was down in when when the government was having their war with the drug cartels and there was violence in durango city but you always felt safe walking around as you know there was, you never felt like you were a target or there was any reason that you were going to be involved in and, and i mean it, it You know, there was a little more violence then, but, you know, the same type of thing. If you're worried about walking around in a community where things are relatively safe, anything can happen to you. It can happen in New York. It can happen in Vancouver. It can happen in London. I mean, you're just the wrong place at the wrong time is, you know, that can happen. And it's unfortunate and it shouldn't, but it does. So, again, I've never felt unsafe in downtown Hermosillo. I've never felt unsafe in downtown Durango. There are other parts of Mexico that I wouldn't go out at night and walk around for sure. But in the again, the community, we are very picky. It's hard enough to find a mine. It's hard enough to find a great asset. Never mind, you know, to, you know, have other things happen that are out of control. So no, again, I mean, like I said, our guys are out in camp. We we're purposely. There's no guns in camp. There's no, you know, extra security. There's none of that. I mean, it's just it's about working with the local community. Everyone knows who you are. They know where you are. They know what you're up to. And, and they're supportive, you know, most of the people in those local communities want their kids to get a job at a mine versus going in and working for the cartel. They, you know, they get, you know, a job that pays three, four five times more or more, you know, versus what they would could ever get as a wage, you know, in and around anything other than maybe possibly working for the cartel, but they, they want, even the guys that work for the cartel want their kids to work for, you know, a mining company and they want that into their community. So it's it's never been something that you know we obviously follow and we pay attention politically and, and what's going on but we would never put our people in a position where we they felt unsafe
0: and uh, silver viper is part of a management group um what what would you say is the benefit of working within within a a, a group um and how do the other companies relate uh, with one another
1: yeah, and our, and our our group's called the Belkara Management Group. It's just a privately run group. It doesn't operate at a profit. It's it's strictly kind of we created it as a name that would survive from company to company um, that you could relate back and say, well, oh, that's another Belcara Group company that's done well. We created the group after we sold Orco Silver, which was a, another company that we had in Mexico. We put the very first drill hole into that, grew it to 270 million ounces of silver, and then sold it in a bidding war between Kuar and First Majestic in Durango, State. So, that's that was our model. But what we saw when we did that transaction was a lot of assets also left that didn't need to go and didn't add value to the deal. We had a house that we owned in Durango that was our office, um, big blue house on the hill that everyone in the city knew, and and all of a sudden. Were mining owned it and we didn't have that office anymore and we lost trucks and we lost XRF guns and everything that was owned under the that Oracle silver banner. So we created the Belcara management group. So things would sit in the, Bel- those types of assets would sit in the Belcara management name and then, you know, lease them back to the companies at no charge or whatever the, the leasing charge, if we're leasing it from a company or, you know, trucks and that, and they would, the companies would cover the cost, but it was under that Belcara management name. So, you know, if we sell another Mexican asset, and we keep our office and we keep the trucks and we don't lose those types of assets. So we created on twofold. The other difference between our group and some of the other groups that fall under kind of a, a, a wing is in our group, there's a lot more crossover between the various companies. So I will help out a lot on Barcelli minerals, I'll help out with Orex minerals. Um, the other two public companies that are under the groups manager right now, when we were running Dolly Varden as a favor to our shareholders for a few years, while well, we turned it over and tidied it all up from the kind of disaster that it had been before our group. Um, you know, we, we helped out, we worked on the marketing materials, the geologists all would get around the table and they would bounce ideas off each other. So, you know, within our group and being part of a group, it allows us to have multiple senior geologists, you know, these guys that have decades of experience in the industry, they've worked for the producers, they've worked for other juniors, and and they all sit around and you get, instead of one set of, you know, senior Eyes on a project, you get four sets of senior, you know, eyes on a project, which is, I think, invaluable. And it also, because of their reputations and and you know, who they've been and their connections to the industry, I think we get a lot more property submissions than a lot of other companies because of those connections. So I think it's very invaluable to our group to have that ability to share and keep our GNA costs, you know, get down because we share our salaries across the various companies. Um And that's always been important to us. We've been a group that doesn't blow, you know, we don't, we spend some money on marketing. Obviously it's necessary, but we don't, you know, blow the lion's share of the capital that we raise on marketing and and then not do anything in the ground. It's always been important that the bulk of the money should be spent on the project and in the ground and you should move up on your merits of the project, not on the ability to just get people to buy your stock. Um,
0: The US uh, federal government has sort of signaled uh, rate cuts will happen later this year. Uh, uh, this year, obviously, done in uh, rather than anticipated. Um, how do you think the pushback and eventual rate cuts will affect uh, the silver market?
1: Yeah, I mean we've we've seen it over you know the thought of rate cuts every time you know going back to to last January, you know when the market was seemingly turned. People thought rates were you know the rate rise the rate rises were done. Um, and then, the you know, the U.S. government signaled that. And then the euro, you know, kind of surprised and did a 50 point rate increase that that kind of shocked the market back into being negative again. And then, you know, subsequently Canada and the U.S. and others followed and started you know, continuing to raise their rates. This idea that rate cuts were coming sooner this year baffles me. <laughs> I You know, you can go back through my interviews online and, you know, in November, December, all of my interviews, I said the rate cuts were going to come in q2 and then we hit january and then all of a sudden you know people were saying oh it's shocking they're not gonna you know they're not cutting rates in january i said when did that when did the idea ever come that the rate cuts were going to come in the first quarter so you know you you when you go through rate increases the way they did and just rapid fire and go up as fast as the rates did the the thought that okay we're pausing in november and now we're going to cut in the first quarter never made sense to me It, it you know and and i'm you know, looking back now, I can keep saying that, but you can go through my track record of videos. And I never once said I thought rate cuts were coming in Q1. So it, you know, they have to allow that period of time of a pause before they were going to turn around. Now, when they do start cutting rates, how rapidly are they going to cut rates? And that's where you can make up some ground. Are they going to be quarter point hikes? Are we going to get a half point? Are we going to go even bigger than that, depending on what's happening in the economy and what's going on. So I, again, I've always expected, you know, at some point in Q2, rate cuts would happen. I think we're still on pace for the end of Q2 to be when the first rate in the U.S., the first rate cuts will be. And, you know, that's what we wait for. The market wants to see that coming down. And I think it's an even bigger deal, not necessarily for the metals prices, which, you know, we can dive into why silver needs to be a lot higher anyways, regardless of rate increases, rate cuts. It doesn't make sense for silver to be trading where it is. But, but from an equity standpoint, and companies like ours that have been in just, you know, this is talking to people that have been in this industry for even lo- much longer than I have been, you know, this is the, this is the worst period of time for especially on the junior side, but even the, the mining companies for ever, you know, as far as people can remember. And it's just, there's no capital out there for companies or for the most part your traditional avenues for capital have certainly dried up because the, the pressure of the precious metals focused funds have had outflows for two years now outside of a month here or there, where maybe they balance out, but, Those are the typical source of financing for all the junior explorers out there. And they frankly have no money and they haven't. And it's even still, I've heard some are balancing getting to even inflows to outflows, but others are still seeing more outflows. And it's been, that's what's made it really difficult on the precious metals equity market. And that's where the rate cuts are going to hit even harder. And people are going to make even more money than being just invested in the metal itself, because all of a sudden, as you bring those interest rates down, all those people that were borrowing money, taking lines of credit on their home and paying, you know, 1% knowing they could outperform it, it's bringing that capital back in. And then subsequently, those people start putting money back into those funds that they rely on to make the right precious metals decisions and having that expertise. And then the generalist funds will follow and pour a bunch more capital in. But right now, I mean, even with if you look at the gold companies, you've got Gold trading at, you know, just below all-time highs, the gold companies making record revenues and the gold companies are trading at half of what their all-time highs are in shares. And it comes back to that side of these interest rate hikes and people having to sell. And every time those funds, the outflows, they've got to liquidate assets and sell shares into a market where there's not a lot of bidders. And, And that's what we've been dealing with, you know, regardless of how great an asset is or how great a company is or what the profit margins are of a company they've been hammered down to lows that no one ever should be at given, you know, the assets that we have, the resources that we have, you know, the potential that projects still have. And it doesn't matter. You're trading down to pennies again from, you know, hitting, you know, 10, 15, 20 times higher than where share prices were, you know, less than a year ago or a year to two years ago.
0: Um, Looking at the silver market, uh, the supply and demand is obviously notoriously off balance. how when will this affect obviously mining companies and the industry?
1: Yeah, well, I mean it it, are, it it has affected the mining companies. You know, you look at the look at a company like Pan American Silver, who was the number two silver producer in the world. and for that company to survive, they become a gold company. You know, eighty percent of their production now is in gold because gold's been profitable. Silver, ten years ago, when you look at the primary silver producers, the first majestics of the world, You know, they needed $25 silver then to break even on their their silver assets. So regardless of supply and demand, which obviously is out of whack and we're ripping through the surplus that exists of silver in the world for five, six years straight now, we were operating in a deficit. You know, they've needed $25 10 years ago, now factor in inflation, and that number has got to be over 30 If you're going to operate a primary silver asset, unless it's the richest primary silver asset in the world. And you, you know, you start making money off of it, but, but really we need, we need $30 plus silver just on a fundamental for some silver companies to start making some money. And really, I mean, it needs to, to punch through and sustain and be a lot higher than that. Now you get into, so that, I mean, that's where I said the price has already affected it. How high does it have to go to affect, Silver producers, well, I would say it at least needs to go to 30, 35 and sustain there. And then you get into the supply and demand side. And, you know, at some point here with the green movements that exist in the world and everything else, you know, you're going to have to get a bunch of new silver assets online to replace the production that's being lost because the silver, you know, as much as First Majestic likes to hold their silver, they can only do it for two or three months before, you know, they're out of cash. So they, they're still having to sell into this market. You can't just say, well, we don't like the price, we're going to hold it and sit on it because they all go bankrupt overnight they do, or you know, within a month or two. So it's a problem and it needs to change. And you know, you have governments around the world pushing the green movement and silver for whatever reason hasn't been picked up in that idea of being the critical metal and, and having to, but when you start looking at the infrastructure, you start looking at solar, you start looking at when all these component parts, the infrastructure that's needed to power even a small percentage of what these Western governments are, are pushing on the idea that, you know, we're going to have, you know, no gas fossil fuel vehicles sold after 2030 or 2035, or, you know, depending on the state or province that you're in, you know, that's not possible. It's not like the, the power grid doesn't even remotely exist to power, you know, 10% of that. So all of these parts and components through that whole line need silver. And you're just going to amplify that difference of being what's produced and what's, you know, out there you know, the JP Morgan's in the world and that have their large physical supply, but that's coming down year over year over year, you know, that, that supply and that surplus. And they're supposed to sit on that for their ETFs, which is the main reason on silver are, you know, our share, you know, the price of silver is as low as it is because it's a paper silver market. It's not based on the physical go buy a bar of silver and you're paying a 30% premium in most places just to get your physical silver. But yet you're paying this, this strange price on the paper market because they've lent out you know, on one ounce of silver, they've created a market a thousand times bigger. And so people liquidate their paper assets and the price gets, you know, hammered because, you know, they've created this much larger controllable market than what, you know, silver as a physical metal can be. And that's been the issue. That's why I laugh at the Bitcoin guys when they're celebrating that, Hey, we're getting ETFs. Well, you know, from the time gold and silver got ETFs, it's been the downfall of the biggest downfalls of our industry. So just, just wait till that run on you know, Bitcoin and, other crypto ETFs happens, and then all of a sudden they say, "Oh, we've created that market now that's bigger and can be controllable, and it's in paper." And you'll watch the, the crypto guys start to complain about ETFs too.
0: Why is the silver price so so um, so low and and obviously undervalued? I um, mean, I think back in the nineteen eighties, silver was was fifty dollars, so yeah. it must be one of the cheapest, cheapest undervalued assets in the world why is it so low why hasn't it why hasn't it risen up similarly to to, to gold um obviously the ratio between gold and silver is 80 80 something to one um what what what, in your opinion what, what why is the the price that low
1: well i i would go back to the last i i to me it's 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 the silver etfs it's the big banks of the world that can control that and manipulate that price and hold it down even more so than they can with gold. So to me, it's the paper market. And then you look at the, this last two years and people are hurting, you know, you look at the cost of capital for, you know, people that are, that have, you know, not wanted to hold physical. So the next best thing to holding physical is supposed to own paper silver. And so they buy into those ETFs and, and then you create these panic periods in this period where people just can't even afford their cost of living and they sell their, their paper assets. So they're, that's uh, why our equities are hurting really bad because people, as patient as they can be, have had to sell when panicking, jump out of their paper you know, investments, whether it's in companies like ours, the big companies or, or in the physical metal itself in the ETF. So people have had to jump out of those, the larger investors that took loans out to, you know, make those investments thinking they're heavily, the metal will outperform, you know, a 1% interest rate, you know, all of a sudden at five, 6%, with the price of the metal coming off they're they're having, you know, it just triggers another whole layer of much larger selling. And it's been that pressure over the last two years, that's really held the price of silver down as well as everything else, you know, and that's the problem. And, but the rebound, and like you say, you know, historically going back, you know, the eighties was a run and we could say $50 there was a manipulated high, but we hit 50 again in the last cycle as a high. And now in this cycle, we should expect that price to be a lot higher as a high when we come through this next bear market. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to throw the the large numbers around because you can watch a number of videos and you can go from anywhere from 50 to hundred to 10 30. I mean, I've heard some very large numbers of people that are experts in the silver industry. And, but it, it does speak to all the different levels of, you know, like we talk about the supply and demand, this push for, how much demand they supposed to be moving forward. And you can argue whether that green movement is a good thing or a bad thing. But if governments are going to push that agenda, then it has to be great for silver. And at some point you're going to see the governments wake up and realize that supply continues. that This is, is a very much a critical mineral and you'll start to see the governments investing in the silver projects, you know, within Canada and the US and other in Mexico and other parts of the world, too. So. To secure that supply, and the car companies are going to wake up, and you're going to start seeing those companies right now that are, you know, panicking to get their supply of copper, or lead, or sorry, lead, of cobalt and zinc and nickel, and they're making those bets right now because they see they realize that they have to, you know, get their hands on, it, or they're going to get direct shipments from mines and make sure that they're getting it where their competitors aren't. That's going to trickle and become silver will be the next metal that that's going to start to happen in, and then you know that'll be part of a financing boom in our industry and it'll obviously help but the other side of the supply side is most of the easy to find silver projects in the world have been found you know silver happens near surface well unless you're in a political area or you know like if you're talking about the middle east or you know you know some of those countries where you know the companies like ours haven't been willing to work because obviously there's massive safety issues and other things and trying to control your claims and making sure, you know, there's, there's issues. So well, there's parts of the world that have silver that have been heavily underexplored, but your traditional countries like Mexico, like Peru, like Chile, other parts of Latin America, you know, the they, they easy to find assets have been picked over. So if you start talking about needing to create a supply, you know, they, you instantly need a jump up in price, say to $50 silver to bring in the assets that haven't been put into production that are subpar. And that's why they have, and then put into production, but it's still scratching the surface of the demand that's needed. And I really don't know where the demand is or the supply of silver is going to come from when we talk about 10, 15 years down the road, you know, there's, there's some assets out there that are limited. And, you know, obviously if the price does increase to much larger numbers, you're going to get a push to do a lot more silver exploration, but just the way silver forms and where these deposits sit, it's, you know, I don't know how you drill blind for silver, although they will be there undercover, but that's going to be expensive and you're going to need a very high price to promote companies to do that. And then we all know the timeline of mines, you know, from the start to finish to a mine, the average will be at least 10 years and getting longer with, you know, further permitting times that the government's been putting in place in a lot of these countries. So it's it's a very interesting time for silver and I, I mean you if you could fast forward the crystal ball and see where we're at 10 years from now i mean you have to have our silver price that's massively higher or you're going have to have to replace silver <laughs> in all these electrical components so it's it's very interesting and i and you know again people that have been patient people that can have a contrarian approach to investing are going to do very well right now across the board investing in silver investing in producers investing in explorers you know and, it's, it's exciting but it's also painful to go through it right now
0: yeah um obviously silver is known for its industrial use how do you see sort of new technology affecting the demand for silver uh, and the industry as a whole
1: well like i say right now the demand is going to be skyrocketing over the next you know and and the nearest term obviously is the use of solar panels and how much silver is used in the components of solar electric cars again electrical components you know gold would be great you could use gold as a replacement for silver but i don't think the people producing like the idea of spending cost too much. Know, two thousand dollars an ounce where they can spend you know 25 to 50 to 100 it doesn't matter what silver goes to it's it goes to a record number it's going to be cheaper to use than gold so you know it it's there isn't a replacement for it i don't know on the periodic table what you could ever replace it over with that you know exists out there and silver is the cheapest there is of all of them right now anyway so as the demand increases, you know, that's that's been the weird thing. You know, this cycle, when you look at, you know, the the run up in the eighties, the run up in, you know, into 2012, where you had these fifty dollar highs, the industrial side of silver was nothing. You know, historically you had a little bit in the medical field, predominantly it was in film, you know, what was used on the industrial side and some electrical components, but and that was always the argument. I remember when I first started in the industry, you know, people were like, you know, you get the odd person who say, Oh, silver, or industrial, and people say it's nothing. Like the, the industrial side and how it affected silver was less than one percent of its price. That's what's different to, in this cycle is all of a sudden, with this big push, with the supply and demand issues, you know, now there is this massive use. You're seeing way much more silver used in the medical industry, you know, it you know, coming out of COVID, the idea of mask well you know what's your best natural antibacterial line some of the masks with silver line hospital gowns with silver lining you know people have all you know people that don't understand a lot of them have always carried a silver coin in their pocket because it naturally would disinfect their hands just rubbing in and touching that silver coin all day long so you know colloidal silver and it's becoming an interesting medical property that's being used but then you but but the the supply and demand that where it really hits is that solar panels electric cars the infrastructure needed around them, and now, on top of the monetary side, which is lagged gold greatly already on the way up, you know, in this this cycle, and you're going to get the monetary side. You've got this industrial side that matters and is very significant, and should drive that side to all time record highs, much higher than the fifty dollar record that we've seen twice in the past.
0: And lastly, what's the uh, outlook for for uh, silver viper? over the remainder of 2024 going into 2025.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're, we're like everyone else right now, it's, capital is hard to come by and we have to be very cautious of where we spend our money. And, and honestly, we've seen a lot of our peers drill and put out, you know, the ones that have drilled the last six months and put out spectacular results it certainly hasn't helped their share price. It's been a liquidity event and a lot of them, their share prices go down on spectacular news. So, you know, we've taken a more cautious approach to the capital that we have. We've, it's the first time this, you know, we've ever been paused and not drilling on the project. And we've really been playing catch up on mapping, sampling, exploring the project, really understanding a lot of other targets outside of Ruby and how our overall system comes together. And so, and it's allowed us, and we've discovered a lot of new areas that were previously unknown on the project, whether it was an old kind of small kind of rat hole working that goes in, you know. 20, 30 meters into the ground that was undercover that people didn't know and and discovering new kind of potential drilling targets and new discoveries on on the project. And and that's what we've been really focused on. We've done some geophysical work, but there's only so much of that you can do. And we've got a lot of new drill targets on top of expanding El Ruby and making that a larger, you know, open pit and increasing the resource. there. starting to develop an underground resource on our kind of multi-kilogram structure, our structure that's vertical in nature that goes below the pit. And then you know, really trying to vector in on where some of our deep our deeper drill holes should go because we've we had a large mining fund and, and a well known geologist did a deep dive under CA and looked at our database and he said you know we're actually onto a large gold carbonate based metal system and you you wonder you know looking at our assays we have no base metals and we have no carbonates and you wonder what he's talking about but there's an idea at a deeper target underneath El Ruby that similar deposits around the world that have the same pathfinder elements, the same type of structure. It's it's at a deeper contact where when those fluids were coming up and mineralizing the system at the contact between the rhyolite package as a host rock and the package below that, when those fluids hit, some of them came up to fine cracks in the rhyolite. And then when they got to our andesite package, which sits above that, you know, those fluids percolate out and created a big boom, but where those fluids hit that contact of the rhyolites, you should have a massive load of mineralization along that contact and that structure. And, and, you know, there's mines around the world that are 5 million plus ounce gold deposits with bonanza grades of silver and base metals that it's at that contact where they really had a big deal. So, you know, I think we're probably already at, you know, our resources at about 700,000 gold equivalent ounces. We're about 60% gold, 40% silver in our resource, no base metals. Um, You know, and we're at probably now with the drilling and the expansion of the pit, we'd be over a million ounces equivalent, you know, with Lots of room to expand up at high in the NSA package, but if you ever tie in and find that contact and where and and if the hypothesis holds true, now you can you know that's a game-changing discovery on talking about you know a multi-million ounce gold high-grade gold silver base metal project, and that would be pretty spectacular. So that's something high up in the geophysics that we did lit up a very deep target below El Ruby that looked quite massive and like quite intriguing and something we very much would like to do. So 2024, hopefully we're testing that we're going to put out an updated resource estimate, hopefully at the end of the year on the back end of a drill program. And then, you know, potentially new discoveries on a lot of new targets. And if we can get into a better gold and silver market where you get rewarded for drill results, you know, I think it could be a massive year for Silver Viper and where we're trading at right now, it's hard to believe that even in somewhat of a better market, even if we didn't do anything, which isn't our plan, um, with silver increasing and our resource, and gold probably going up a lot higher as well. That, you know, I think just on that and in the industry as a whole, you're going to get a double, a triple, you know, as metals, as people start pouring money back into the space, because these share prices across the board are ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Steve, thank you for, for your time. Thank you for giving us an update on Silver Viper uh, and give us an uh, overview of the silver market. Um, and obviously good luck for the remainder of uh, 2024 um if our audience wants to reach out to you if they've got any questions uh, if they want to follow obviously your story and silver viper how can they go about doing that what sort of social media channels are you on
1: yeah we're on we're on twitter we're on facebook um as far as the social media channels go that's easy to find all of our information is on our website www.silverviperminerals.com um, all of our contact details if you want to you know email reach out to alicia or myself um you can get a hold of us we're more than happy to jump on calls with investors if you, you just want to talk silver talk about the company um, yeah feel free i mean our phone numbers everything is on there so that's the best source of access to everything and then like you say we, we're we very active on twitter and facebook as well
0: yeah and we can include those in the show notes companies anyway for, for easy access so steve thank you for your time all the best for 2024 hopefully the silver price will We'll make a a bit of a a rise up and make a bit more significant, uh, but we will have to wait and and see.
1: Thanks, Rob. It was a pleasure.
0: Yeah, no worries. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, As always, appreciate your continued support. Please keep sharing these episodes far and wide with people in the industry, but also people outside of our industry as well. So until next time,